You're listening to the Hearing the Voice lecture series. The following lecture was recorded on the 22nd of January 2015 and features Dr. Ben Alderson Day on voices, agents and presences, asking the who question of auditory verbal hallucinations. If you'd like to find out more about our research into voice hearing, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or tweet us at hearingvoice. If there's a broader kind of question ahead of my talk today, it's really what are voices or what do I think voices are? So I'm hoping that's not too um, ambitious. Um, but um, I'm mainly going to be talking about that from the perspective of voices, agents and presences. Um, to do that, it's probably useful to start with a, a definition. If you um, want to assess somebody for um, auditory hallucinations, um, which very often are verbal, hence auditory verbal hallucinations. Uh, you might use a definition like this. This is from the CIRATS, the Psychotic um, Symptoms Rating Scale, developed by Gillian Haddock and colleagues. It defines an auditory hallucination as follows. An auditory perception that has the compelling sense of reality of a true perception but occurs without external stimulation of the, stimulation of the relevant sensory organ. Um, so there are two things to pull out of that. Uh, firstly, it's an auditory perception. It's something, something is being heard. You're hearing something going on. Um, and second, a compelling sense of reality. It really feels real. It really feels like something is happening to you right at that moment in the room with you. Um, if you're being spoken to, it feels like somebody's there in the room speaking to you. Um, if you hear music, uh, you think some music is actually being played. If you hear um, another kind of sound, it feels like um, as real as an everyday perception. Um, You'll find, if you try to administer something like the CIRATS, that if you ask people who hear voices about their voices and you want to know exactly about all the specific auditory properties, um, that it's pretty much easier said than done. Uh, very often uh, they might describe their voices but say, well, you know, sometimes it feels like it's out loud, but other times it's more uh, inchoate, more... I mean, it's very clear what it's trying to say, but it doesn't have a clear loudness to it, or it doesn't necessarily have a clear location, or it feels inside of me, but it still definitely feels like a hearing thing, um, or it still feels like a sound, even if it doesn't have a loudness. Something like that. Something where the auditoriness isn't very clear. Sometimes the auditoriness might appear to drop out altogether. Um, for instance... Um, in the first year of hearing voice, uh, at one of our um, fortnightly research meetings, um, a voice hearer came to speak to us to describe um, his main voice that he experiences. Um, in many ways, his voice was uh, very typical of uh, a number of voice hearing experiences. It was a voice that would um, intrude upon his experience in an uncontrollable way um, regularly, um, often saying things which weren't particularly nice. Uh, the, this particular voice could be quite boorish, quite dominating, quite rude, quite disrespectful. Um, more often than not, saying things to the voice hearer um, at any given time or day in a completely uncontrollable way. Um, but what the voice hearer said, what this man said was, you know, sometimes you don't even hear him, you just know he's there, okay? And what he meant by that was partly something about expectancy, partly about going into a situation and expecting the voice to say something, but equally to do, it was referring to an experience of the voice being there, being there like a person, somebody at your side, being in the room in some way, the feeling of a, a presence of some kind. And so the question that kind of got me interested in this topic was, well, look, 
how can a voice be present without being heard? How are we to understand that sort of idea? It seems completely paradoxical, completely uh, strange if we're starting off with the assumption that uh, a hallucination of this kind, voice hearing of this kind, um, is predominantly a, an auditory experience. And what I'm going to try to do today is mainly cover and um, talk about one particular answer to that question, um, and the answer is this. Um, the voices may be primarily experienced as social presences or agent-like identities. Um, and what I mean by that is voices are being experienced as um, things or representations that can have their own sets of beliefs and desires, their own thoughts about the world, their own knowledge. And when they say something, they're trying to convey something to you. They're trying to communicate something. Um, that is, if you hear a voice speaking, you may also be representing or thinking about the agent behind the voice. Um, now, uh, members of this project will be familiar with uh, ideas of this kind, um, largely because of um, a lot of the sterling work that our collaborators have been doing, but also people at the core of this project. Um, so, for example, Vaughan Bell, um, based out at UCL now in London, uh, wrote this paper in 2013, A Community of One, Social Cognition and Auditory Verbal Hallucinations, um, making a strong case for paying more attention to the social and agent-like aspects of voices and arguing that our current understanding of voice hearing doesn't pay anywhere near enough attention to that kind of characteristic. Um, but also uh, the work of people like uh, Sam Wilkinson, our resident uh, philosopher of mind, um, he wrote a blog post um, in the autumn with Felicity Diemer talking about uh, talking to the voices in our heads, treating voice hearing experiences like they come from an agent that has an intention, interacting with voices uh, with all the pragmatics as we would do with uh, interacting with agents outside of us. Um, and more recently, uh, Sam and Vaughan have uh, teamed up to uh, produce an article for Mind and Language, which is forthcoming, um, where they really work through the nitty-gritty of what it would mean for voices to be represented as agents. Um, so I'm shamelessly going to be building on that work today and really uh, trying to work through that idea and see how far we can go with it, how we can apply it to existing models. Uh, the structure of my talk is in four parts. Uh, the first part is, if not a voice, then what? Um, reviewing the argument for voices as social and agent-like presences. Um, I'm going to try and not spend too much time over that. Some of it I'll try and go through quite quickly, largely because it has already been argued by... Um, Sam and Vaughan. Um, the second part of my talk is um, about how our current psychological theories of voice hearing handle the social or agent-like characteristics that we're proposing for voices. Um, and I'm going to in particular be looking at three different approaches. Uh, models of voice hearing that are based on inner speech, models of voice hearing based on memory, and predictive processing approaches to voices. Um, in part three, uh, possibly giving away the answer to part two, um, I'm going to be talking about how we have to adapt these models uh, to understand um, uh, social characteristics of voices. Uh, in particular, I'm going to be focusing on the social features inherent in some aspects of speech and language processing. Um, and part four, um, I want to talk about uh, a couple of questions, conceptual questions really, that I think are going to be important moving forward with this kind of research, really trying to clarify uh, the importance of social characteristics of voices. Um, and two questions for future research. Um, so, on to part one. If not a voice, um, then what? Um, I think there are really two main kinds of arguments for thinking of voices as social presences in some way. Um, the first one is one of uh, content, and it's based on um, the kind of things voices say, basically. 
Um, that, that argument is that voices often have consistent social or agent-like properties. So um, many, many voices have a particular kind of character or have a set identity across, across time. Um, the second argument is this. These properties present in a variety of modalities. And by that I mean um, they might present in an auditory way, but they might also present in other forms too in some special cases. Um, so for the first argument, voices often have consistent social or agent-like properties. Um, voices can often be interacted with or will interact with other voices. You speak to voice hearers, many of them will talk about voices that can be spoken to or might speak to other voices about them. Um, voices rarely seem, well, in some cases, they might say something which is um, not to be interacted with at all, but many voices almost invite an interaction. Secondly, um, part of that interaction is some sort of pull um, for a response, um, a proposed thought, or in possibly in either thoughts or actions. So, for example, um, you might feel like you should respond to a voice, or you, in what the voice might say, you might feel like you need to modify your behaviour. But um, there's some sense in which many, many voices are quite hard to tear your attention away from. They seem to have implications for how you might have to act, and that might just have to be um, to respond to the voice. Um, Voices might be reminiscent of past social interactions. Some people's voice hearing seems to be uh, linked in some way to interactions that they've had in the past or conversations they've had with people in the past. Um, and uh, many voices have consistent identities or personas. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, in, a, in a survey that we did recently that um, Angela Woods, of Hearing the Voice Led, um, we asked people about um, whether their voices were characterful or seemed to have a distinct personality in some way. Um, 70% of respondents describe the voices as um, having particular kinds of characteristics um, that were uh, particular um, to those voices. Um, that's something which comes up again and again when you look at phenomenological surveys of voices, something that was commented on by Naomi and David in 96. They talked about uh, voices taking on kind of stereotypical forms, and possibly voice, the voice of the devil or demons, possibly a voice that seemed like a doctor or a sergeant, voices that almost took on tropes or forms in some way. Um, sometimes voices as well will have specific identities um, uh, that either either real or in some way supernatural or fictional. So um, in a um, case study by Strand and colleagues in 2013, there was a woman who regularly heard the voice of Prince. Uh, when she heard Prince, Prince was a supportive voice that would help her through certain situations. Um, uh, another case described by um, Joe Atkinson and colleagues um, uh, a voice hearer who was deaf uh, talked about the experience of being communicated with by God's moustache in particular. Not the rest of God, but quite particularly being a message being conveyed by God's moustache. Um, in those cases, it's not just that there seems to be some sort of characteristic of the voice that might be consistent across time. It's actually particular to a set identity. Um, possibly more characteristic of the majority of voice hearing experiences, though, um, are these kinds of voices. This is um, the voices described by Christine Blanker. Um, her voices, she says, sound unfamiliar to her. A male voice, a child that she does not know. Um, she doesn't know any of those voices, and yet they sound like real people. Um, so she's picking out particular identities for those voices, a male voice, a child. Um, but they're not necessarily people that she can clearly tie to anybody she knows. They just sound like they have a particular character. Um, the second argument is more about uh, form and modality. And the argument is that if, if lots of voices have social or agent-like characteristics, they seem to present in a variety of forms which 
possibly cuts across the auditory nurse. Uh, I started off my talk talking about um, what seems to be an instance of something like felt presence. Now, felt presences um, happen in lots and lots of different contexts. They happen in survival situations as well, in something called the third man factor. Um, they refer to the feeling of somebody being there uh, without any other clear um, indicators that a person is present. So, for example, you can't necessarily see the visual features of a person, you can't necessarily hear the person, but you have a very distinct feeling that somebody is there. In the case of the voice hearer that I described at the start of the talk, it seems like what they consider to be their voice could sometimes appear as almost a pure presence, a social presence on its own. Um, possibly more representative is this idea of voices that seem to vary in their auditory characteristics, so sometimes being loud and clearly audible, sometimes possibly more thought-like or closer to thoughts. Um, voices that could on occasion appear in another form, so for example, in some interviews I've done recently with voice hearers, they might talk about a voice which is mainly something that they would hear, but every now and again has appeared to them as a vision instead. So maybe just a one-off occurrence, but uh, they would talk about, he has also come to me as a vision. Um, finally, um, some people's voices seem to change over time. So if you ask about, say, when voice hearing experiences started or what they're like now, some voice hearers will say that um, maybe that their voice hasn't spoken out loud for a while. Um, or started off being something that was quite clearly external or quite clearly auditory and now has become something which is more intertwined with, um, uh, with the, possibly with their own thoughts. Um, across those instances, in, despite that variation, possibly the auditory characteristics um, in particular, what they call a voice is the identity of the experience through time, is the identity of that particular um, agent, it seems. Um, and then in some cases as well, um, you come across what appear to be um, voices that have no auditory characteristics at all and yet are still communicating something verbal. For example, um, a case uh, documented by Bloiler in 56, um, one voice here describing their experience as being as if someone pointed his finger at me and said, go and drown yourself. Quite distinctly, that wasn't, a, that wasn't something they necessarily heard, but it was a quite clear experience of a message coming to them, but soundless in some way. Um, another instance is something like um, uh, experience of voices in deaf psychosis. So I've already referred to the, um, the person who experienced um, voices like uh, a voice that appeared to be coming from God's moustache. Um, in deaf psychosis, actually, um, although some people initially thought that perhaps auditory characteristics would be present in, in uh, counterintuitively in a number of um, different cases of deaf voices. Um, the level of auditory properties within uh, people who, with psychosis who are deaf seems to relate to the amount of experience um, that they have with um, sounds, with language, uh, prior to going deaf. So in the case of uh, purely congenitally deaf uh, people with psychosis, they might describe voice hearing experiences, but what they tend to be referring to is something which might be more a mixture of visual or possibly tactile um, experiences. And yet they will still call those voices as well. Now, we might think, look, look these, are really, these are really separate things that we shouldn't necessarily um, allow to confuse the situation when we're talking about auditory hallucinations, per se. But the interesting point is the extent to which people identify and call these things voices, okay, that they're, in terms of the experience being something uncontrollable, something intrusive, something that communicates with you and something that might have a consistent identity across time, those things appear to be driving 
calling it a voice, per se, as opposed to something that is necessarily being heard. Um, so, just to reiterate that, voices are described in this instance as having characteristic properties that are consistent across different modalities, but can present independently of auditory characteristics, it seems. And what is being called a voice, arguably, in this instance, is the presence of a particular agent or a social identity, uh, the who of the experience, per se, rather than something necessarily being heard. Um, so as I said at the start, this is most recently being put forward as an argument by um, Vaughan Bell and Sam Wilkinson. Vaughan in his uh, paper in 2013, The Community of One, talked about voices being as much hallucinated social identities as they are hallucinated words or sounds. And he goes further than that uh, because his paper is really a call for accommodating um, the social in our existing models. What he proposes is... Um, that there is an alteration to the social cognitive or social neurocognitive systems that support internal models of social actors and their associated voice imagery to explain why voices are typically experienced as having an identity and acting socially. Um, this was built on by um, Wilkinson and Bell in their forthcoming article. They, uh, to summarise their argument, um, they go through different levels at which a voice could be understood to be an agent they argue that many voice-hearing experiences, if not the majority of voice-hearing experiences, contain clearly individuated social identities, whether that's something that could be tied to an external social actor or agent or something that would be more of an internal ter interpretation of what that agent might be. There's a distinct identity going on in um, the experience of voice. Um, and they, what they also say is, well, look, agency representation is something that we do from very, very young, and when we learn to do it, it seems to be relatively incorrigible um, and involves a tracking of identities across time and space. So what they do in their article is basically look at all the literature there is completely separately in voices on how we understand and recognise agents in everyday social cognition. It is something that um, infants do from an incredibly young age that can do it based on very, very minimal cues. Um, and also, once we're used to attributing agency in some way, it seems to be something that kind of sticks. If you spot something as an agent, it's not that easy to throw it off, um, whether that's cases of pareidolia, um, so spotting something which appears to be person-like or agent-like, um, or, um, and I apologise that the video doesn't work because this laptop can't run MP4s, um, this is something that's regularly used in social cognition tests, this is the triangles test. Um, if you haven't seen it before, it involves these two triangles moving around the box, uh, one triangle chasing the other one, one triangle blocking the other triangle off. Um, as soon as you see the triangles moving a particular way, it's very natural to see them as somehow acting like agents. They're somehow, even though they're just small, minimal shapes, they're behaving in a way that we kind of see as something that could have an intention. They're moving in a way that we immediately think it's trying to do this, it wants to do that, it's playing in this way. Um, and that's really what I mean by kind of automatic and incorrigible, this idea that as soon as you see it as an agent, you almost can't unsee it. Um, just to reiterate a point, going back a couple of places as well, important to this too, and something that Wilkinson and Bell outline is this sense of tracking identities. We're also very, very good at tracking particular um, social identities across time, people we haven't seen for years, people who the last time we saw them, we actually said something really rude and we probably need to apologise now people who uh, we think we saw go into our garden and we're going to keep watching our garden until we make sure they go out of it as well. Um, those, those ways in which we can spot an agent and keep them in mind and track their particular identity, that's something which is inherent in social cognition, is inherent in agent processing. And basically what 
Wilkinson and Bell argue is that, look, we can explain a number of the confusing situations that go on when people talk about their voices appearing in different forms, appearing without sound, appearing with no form whatsoever, but feeling like they're there, if we think about voices as agents, if we think about them as these representations that we look at, that we are almost by default trying to spot in particular situations and we're going to track them across time in some sort of meaningful way. Is that right, Sam? Good, right. <laughs> um, for the rest of the talk, I'm basically going to assume that's correct. Now, I realised after I wrote this that it looks a little bit sarcastic. Um, I do think it probably is correct as well, but the purpose of my talk is not really to argue the case for this. It's more to say, if it were to be correct, what would we need to do, more particularly as psychologists, what would psychologists need to do to actually try and explain and understand it? How would we accommodate this sort of process into models of voice hearing? Um, before I do that, though, I'm going to have some wine. Um, and then uh, I want to deal with two objections relatively quickly. Um, the first one is this. Um, firstly, that the, you could say that the apparent social character of voices um, or them feeling like agents in some way is just something that happens post hoc and adornment, a, uh, an interpretation that happens after the fact, possibly even a delusion of identity in response to something that seems odd and something that you don't know how to explain, but is a fundamentally auditory and non-social experience. This is probably the default response you'd find uh, within psychiatry and within medical approaches, and for some psychologists as well. It really comes from the division of um, how we understand symptoms within psychosis along the lines of hallucination and delusion. The idea that if something is happening to you and it's clearly perceptual, as in it's something that feels like you see it or you hear it, then it counts as a hallucination. If it's something which might be to do with your own beliefs or understanding of what's happening in the world, then it's going to be a delusion of some kind. And so you could say that people who appear to be hearing the voice of Prince, there isn't anything really about that experience per se which contains agency or social characteristics. They're just under the delusion that they're hearing Prince. Now, um, notwithstanding the fact that this completely dismisses how voice hearers uh, decide to interpret and understand their voices... Um, I don't think it's a particularly fair objection in this sense, um, mainly because that's not really how we tend to process voices and how we tend to process agents in everyday perception. Um, if I hear Sam's voice in the office, I don't go through some sort of deliberative exercise or I don't go and check my belief to work out who that might be. I don't do any sort of analytic process. What I do instead is recognise it. It's Sam's voice. There's something inherent in that moment, in that perception, um, but I know the identity, I can recognise it straight away. Um, put simply, and this really is just to reiterate um, the case I've already laid out, it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't necessarily seem like people are weaving some sort of um, interpretive story about their own experience in that sense. Um, but it, it, it could hold that objection. And the second one is this. Um, if you want to say that voices are somehow primarily social um, rather than auditory, if you want to say... Um, that they start in some ways fully formed agents. Well, no, if you want to say that they're primary, um, wouldn't you have to show that they were fully formed agents when they started? Wouldn't they have to be agentic or clearly characterful in some way? And how many voices actually do that? Um, this is a valid question in the sense that we, uh, we don't really know and it could have kind of quite important implications for how we understand voices. Um, just to move kind of one, one response out of the way first, 
And saying the voices are primarily experienced as social isn't necessary to say that in time they are experienced first as social identities and then as hallucinated objects. The use of primarily here is more about importance, it's more about the force of the experience. So when somebody is hearing a voice, are they primarily having an auditory experience or are they primarily engaging with a social identity? Um, the second thing to say is, um, we could try and go and look at um, when voices start. If we had, in theory, lots of great longitudinal data, we could try and work out whether there appeared to be characterful aspects of voices from the start. Um, if there were, then that would definitely uh, undermine the idea that this is maybe perhaps some sort of story that people are coming to to understand their voices. Um, but we, don't, we simply don't have that data, and even if we were to get it, it's not always very clear uh, where the line between something being a, just a purely perceptual experience and something being an experience of social power, something picking out a particular agent, and um, where that line is drawn. Um, for example, um, this is uh, another example actually from Christine Blanca's story of her voices um, from a paper by Darman and Deidre. Um, she describes when she first heard voices, and I won't go through this whole quote, but Basically, her voice starts when she hears a baby cry, okay, and her response to hearing a baby cry on its own is a distraction and a feeling that she needs to go and look for it. Um, she would go and look for it, but she could never find it, and then after a while, other voices start coming too. A female voice that would call her name, other voices that were initially helpful but then became aggressive and threatening. Um, in that instance, we could say, well, look, uh, a baby isn't something that you're necessarily going to have a con conversation with. A baby isn't necessarily a fully formed character saying all the things like uh, I'm going to kill you or we will torture you until the end as her later voices said but a baby still has social power and a baby still has a particular identity in this instance she was quite clear on what she thought she heard and she responded in a way that um, as if it was a, a, a real agent as if it was a real social identity in that instance the line between something being a vivid social representation and something just being an auditory representation isn't very clear at all. Um, and probably if we went back and looked at many different cases of how voices start, you'd find many, many instances of this kind, actually. Uh, cases where it really isn't very clear uh, what comes first um, in this instance. Um, so, um, moving on to part two of the talk, how do current theories handle the social? And here I'm mainly going to be talking about psychological and um, neuroscientific theories, because that's my background. Um, not to preclude the importance of other people's interpretations. Um, and I'm mainly talking about three models here, a uh, model of inner speech and self-monitoring in relation, relation to hallucinations, and memory and trauma-based approaches, and predictive processing um, accounts. To <clears throat> um, start off with inner speech, inner speech and self-monitoring is um, possibly still the standard view of how voices might occur within cognitive neuroscience. It's definitely the predominant model over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and the basic idea is this. Um, auditory hallucinations may arise from people's own verbal thoughts or inner speech, which is somehow misattributed or not recognised. Uh, the idea comes from motor theory initially, um, and specifically the way in which um, processes of action and perception work together. And the rough idea is this, that every time we perform an action, uh, we not only send a motor copy to our um, motor cortex, we also send something called an efferent copy uh, around uh, to sensory areas of the brain, um, which provides the basis for a forward model, uh, a prediction of what the perceptual consequences of our action will be. Um, 
If there is disruption to the efference copy, i.e. the marker as to what's going to happen in the moment when you perform an action, um, then it's theorised that you can get various disruptions to um, self-ownership, feeling that something belongs to you, feeling that it's something, something that you generated. In the case of voices, the proposal is that uh, disruptions to your own verbal thinking um, allow for certain things to be uh, not recognised due to a mismatch between um, a forward model involved in your inner speech and the actual performance of your inner speech. Um, there's a variety of sources of evidence for um, inner speech models still, uh, predominantly the involvement of speech production and speech perception brain areas during auditory hallucinations, uh, mainly based on symptom capture studies, studies where you ask people to press a button when they're lying in a scanner and they hear a voice. Um, there's evidence of structural and functional connectivity, uh, so the extent to which different brain regions can talk to each other. There's evidence of that being disrupted in, those, in people with auditory hallucinations. There's also some evidence from uh, um, some people who hear voices that subvocal muscular activity is also involved um, during the instance of hallucinations. Um, so what about social or agentic characteristics? Well, in the case of inner speech models, um, they don't go very far. Um, other identities, the sense of a voice coming from someone else in particular, only come from the failure of self-monitoring and possibly some reasoning about the unusual experience. So um, in this case, the kind of delusional interpretation, the idea that you might be creating a story about that identity would fit with a, with a self-monitoring approach. Um, this isn't a very satisfying explanation, largely because something not feeling like it's you does not necessarily make it feel like it's another specific agent, something that's got all the vivid characteristics of another person, something even that is another person who you need to talk to or you need to respond to. Um, it gives us alienness in a way, it gives us something anomalous that we don't understand, but it doesn't necessarily um, give you something that seems characterful or agent-like. Um, for memory models, uh, they've got a, a slightly different issue, uh, but they can accommodate certain characteristics of, uh, or social characteristics of voices a bit better. Um, memory models largely different from speech processing-based models by emphasizing, emphasizing the role of intrusions and thoughts about prior experiences stored in memory. Um, there are kind of two broad kinds, really. There's um, inhibitory models, such as those proposed by Flavio Waters and colleagues. These emphasize um, the ability to manage your own uh, difficult memories, your own intrusive memories, and they propose that in some cases people who hear voices also have a real problem with um, stopping certain types of thoughts, certain types of memories, intruding upon their everyday thinking. Um, there are also uh, dissociative models, um, uh, recently proposed by people like Eleanor Longdon, but also Dirk Corstens, uh, John Reed, uh, which uh, really come out of the tradition of understanding voices uh, via trauma. So they argue that um, voices are related to your prior experiences, are related to your memory, but because of the traumatic and terrible nature of your past experiences, the ability of your memories to be um, tracked, kept in context, to be recognised for what they are, um, becomes um, interrupted in some way. You become fragmented uh, in terms of your own sense, sense of self and how that relates to... Um, your own memories and your own experience. When that happens, certain um, experiences can arrive um, as if voices into your experience. Now, um, as I think is relatively clear, well, no, before I move on to that, a strong reading of both of those accounts is that it leads directly into hallucination, as if there was a direct path from 
memory and prior experience to um, experience of a voice. Um, a possibly weaker compatible reading is that um, it feeds into self-monitoring models that is consistent with that. So it could be that you've, got, you've had lots and lots of intrusive experiences or something like that, um, and that's affecting or feeding into your inner speech, and then you start to not recognise certain experiences as well. Um, these sorts of models actually can accommodate um, social or characterful content pretty well, because all they have to do is posit that prior situations involve powerful agents or powerful characters, um, and uh, the reason that they're intruding into your consciousness in some way, the reason that, the, that they're appearing as voices once more is because of, realistically, the social power inherent in those experiences. Um, so it's not necessarily a problem with these models at all if we want to explain why that voice, or if we want to explain why the voice appears, ha appears to have power, or why it's that voice every time that you hear a voice, um, because they will explain it in terms of the situations that happened in the past. Largely, um, it's not clear on why that particular memory or experience would become a voice over others. Um, but this is actually a gen more general problem for all models of voice hearing. Understanding, uh, we might be able to explain why a voice would happen to be characterful or agent-like, but why that agent over another agent, or why that traumatic memory over another traumatic memory became a voice, is harder to specify. But as I say, this is a I mean, we could also level the same accusation against something like inner speech or verbal thought. Why do only certain thoughts or certain kinds of inner speech turn into hallucinations if that's the mechanism? Um, the problem with these sorts of accounts is that not many voices are really quite like memories. Lots might be reminiscent in some way or a reflection of something that seems like a past experience. Um, but not many are... Um, things that appear vivid and direct enough to be called something like replays. So, for example, a, a phenomenology study by um, Simon McCarthy-Jones and colleagues in Australia in 2012, looking at a sample of 199 people with schizophrenia and hallucinations, found 12% of those had voices that seemed to be clearly something like a replay, something that you could ascribe to a memory. Um, lots more voices seemed somehow similar, but not quite the same. And if they're not quite the same, then we need an account of why certain types of experiences aren't appearing as memories and are appearing as hallucinations. Uh, put in another way, um, voices might be reminiscent of past inter interactions, but there seems to be some sort of transformation going on. Um, and what memory models largely don't do is explain what that transformation process might be. Even in the case of dissociative models, where the links between yourself and your sense of history, your autobiography... Um, are broken and um, it's not clear why you would have a voice which still wouldn't be clearly reminiscent of a prior voice and um, instead these seems to be these seem to be representations which are one step removed um, or as I say some sort of transformation of a, of a previous experience and um, put simply not many of our memories talk back so there needs to be there needs to be an account of that how does a memory take on it life like that within memory models um, a third kind of account that um, we could think about are predictive accounts, predictive processing accounts. Um, these are very, very popular at the moment within uh, cognitive neuroscience, um, and they're really offering not necessarily a, a theory of hallucinations per se or anything like that, but they're looking to offer um, a theory of uh, perception as a whole. This is a theory of mind. Um, as such, we shouldn't hammer them too much for a lack of uh, specificity, uh, but we can have a go. Um, <laughs> um, so the, the idea about behind predictive accounts very very briefly is that 
most of your perception doesn't work on taking in signals from outside of you and passing them up a chain of recognition where you compare them to your stored knowledge and expectations and then decide, I can see a tree outside or something like that. Um, instead, for a variety of reasons, mainly uh, one of minimising the amount of uh, processing that you have to do, minimising the amount of effort, um, we can think of the brain as being a prediction machine, something that all the way down to the lowest level of receiving signals from the outside is constantly trying to make a prediction about what might be there. If we make a successful prediction, that means that we don't actually have to deal with much of the variation. So we only have to deal with the edging of the prediction. We only have to deal with the things that didn't quite fit in. That's something called prediction error. Um, the proposal of predictive processing accounts is that um, a series of levels in a hierarchy manage um, sets of predictions coming down and pass prediction errors up the way um, until eventually there's some sort of equilibrium, until eventually you've accounted for all the error that you need to and you can have a, and basically you can have the sense of a coherent perception. Um, recently people have tried to apply that to the idea of uh, hallucinations. Um, as I said, predictive processing is much broader accounts. Um, the uh, Fletcher and Frith in 2009 argued for a kind of Bayesian approach um, in terms of managing your own prior expectations um, to understanding hallucinations and delusions. Uh, Guillaume Horger had a paper last year talking about uh, predictive processing and how it might um, affect what's happening right in the auditory cortex um, during voice hearing. Um, Jardine Deneuve in 2013 proposed a theoretical account that specifically tried to account for hallucinations as uh, persistent or obsolete predictions from high levels that are mistaken for bottom-up signals. So because of a failure to regulate the usual levels of um, activation at some of these um, different stages of the hierarchy, you end up with predictions hanging around and then being taken for um, actual real percepts instead. Um, now, predictive accounts don't technically need to add anything to uh, understand what's happening in terms of agency attribution or social characteristics or anything like that. Um, in strong readings of predictive processing accounts, and the, the person who mainly argues for them has proposed them, Carl Friston, uh, definitely backs this sort of account. Um, all you have is a bigger and bigger hierarchy where at different levels, different types of information is getting, well, no, um, different data is getting dealt with, but it's not qualitatively any different. So you've got different sets of expectations, different types um, of beliefs being formed, per se, um, but all you've got is a predictive hierarchy all the way up to higher cognitive functions. So in that instance, if you've got a prior expectation that Elvis will be in the building, then Elvis will appear to you as a presence. Okay, There's nothing more than that. You have a strong expectation. Now, if that seems slightly underwhelming, um, that's because it is. Um, uh, this, is this picture is a Fristonian uh, desert landscape. Um, it uh, refers to a phrase um, from Andy Clark's overview of predictive processing and behavioural brain science in 2013. Um, Clark uh, is sympathetic to the predictive account, um, but took issue with the idea that we don't need to refer to other kinds of explanations or information for some of the higher order, more complex processes that might be involved in cognition. But we can, we can make the same comparison when thinking about some of the uh, more particular characteristics of voices as well. Um, the reason he calls it a desert landscape is uh, this is the idea of a, a predictive hierarchy where there's nothing in it apart from predictions and prediction error. Um, and this is what Clark says. He says, even if such an austere description is indeed possible, that would not immediately justify our claiming that it thereby constitutes the better tool for understanding the rich organisation of the cognitive economy. To see this, 
we need only reflect that it's all just atoms, molecules, and laws of physics too. But that doesn't mean those provide the best constructs and components for the systemic descriptions attempted by cognitive science. The desert landscape theorist thus needs to do more, it seems to me, to demonstrate the explanatory advantages of abandoning the more traditional appeals to value, reward, and cost. Now, there he's talking about the reason that we might act in a particular way or believe a particular thing um, with reference to value, reward, and cost. But we could apply uh, we, our own terms for agency and social interaction and social characteristics. It's the same kind of objection, this idea that for us to have a full explanation, really, we want something more than just predictions and prediction errors. Um, so just to summarise that section, current models and social voices um, really don't accommodate for social characteristics that well, or if they do, they still leave certain questions open. Inner speech or self-monitoring models offer very little account of how agency and identity could arise. They just give a sense of something not being you. Uh, memory models can readily account for social characteristics, but they're mysterious about the path to becoming a voice. I mean, this is probably a, uh, more a wider criticism of, of their model rather than anything particular to agency. Um, and predictive approaches, as I've just said, can explain social characteristics as well as they explain any other higher-order process, but not in an explanatorily satisfactory way. Um, so what do we need to do to go about um, making those theories better or how, how do we need to respond um, in order to understand what's happening um, the cognitive psychologist or cognitive neuroscientist would probably have a default response which would be can we just add another module um, or add another process so going back to this model of what might be happening in terms of self-monitoring um, they might say maybe this thing's happening too but you're also um, going to end up with some social stuff happening over there um, turning it into a social experience instead. Now that might be true it's not very parsimonious but it might be true um, indeed in um, Bell's original paper he argues that possibly in addition to difficulties with monitoring and managing your own thoughts for voice hearers there might be something different occurring in terms of the development of internal social models. And what he means by that is something about predictions about agents, predictions about the way certain people will behave in certain situations. Um, what most people, I think what most psychosis researchers would assume, if you were talking about bringing in social cognitive processes to this idea, is um, theory of mind. The theory of mind is an idea that refers to the representations of others' thoughts and feelings. Um, and there's been lots of research on this in people with schizophrenia. Not necessarily related to the experience of hallucinations or people with schizophrenia in particular who, who hear hallucinations a lot but just groups of people with schizophrenia diagnosis um, often you find that certain types of theory of mind skills are, uh, are somehow altered or atypical in these groups and so we could think maybe that theory of mind problems would contribute to misattributions of intentions and agency so if you thought, if you had a difficulty in general or the way in which you thoughts about others' thoughts and feelings was somehow altered, then maybe you would be misattributing these thoughts and feelings to other things when you shouldn't as well. You see agents when they aren't there, you see beliefs or intentions when they aren't there. Um, this, was, this sort of idea was pushed by um, a pair of researchers called uh, Crespi and Badcock in 2008 in a behavioural and brain sciences paper, where they proposed that psychosis and autism might be diametrical disorders of the social brain based on theory of mind skills. Um, that was followed by a bunch of commentaries basically saying, no, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, if you, if you were to propose that it's some sort of overactive theory of mind being involved, then you'd be very close to that sort of account. Um, 
The, the, the main problem with that sort of idea, really, is a lack of clear evidence that these sorts of systems are involved during hallucination, per se. Um, so uh, these are results from two um, meta-analyses, big surveys of the um, neuroimaging data on symptom capture studies, studies of hallucinations in the scanner, um, conducted by um, one of our collaborators, uh, Simone Kuhn, and one of our newer collaborators, uh, Renaud Jadri, um, from 2012 to 2011. Um, in both of those two separate analyses, um, you're getting lots of areas related to uh, speech production and reception. You're getting lots of areas related to motor function and some areas related to memory, but not many areas related that much to social cognition, per se. Um, and in most cases, in these analyses, you're not constraining your analysis to just one particular area. All the areas in the brain have got a chance to respond. Okay, So if there was clearly social stuff going on, then we might expect there to be some more supportive data from these sorts of results. Um, there is evidence um, via symptom capture studies and in some other um, neural studies of some brain regions or networks that appear to be involved, involved in both voice hearing and sometimes involved in social cognition. So things like the insular, uh, areas like the hippocampus, predominantly related to memory, the anterior cingulate, which is related to lots and lots of functions, but also related to things like some aspects of self of the processing and control and um, they are all implicated in voice hearing experiences but there are also other areas which are conspicuous by their absence so posterior midline structures which are a key part of the theory of mind network and parts of the temporal parietal junctions on both sides they don't appear a lot in symptom capture studies they don't appear a lot in, in uh, study neuro, in general in neural studies on auditory verbal hallucination per se and um, interestingly Temporal parietal junction areas are often used in TMS studies, neurostimulation studies, for um, treatment for people who hear voices and want to have um, that sort of um, help. Um, but they're not necessarily implicated by the rest of the, the research data, the research findings. Um, so it doesn't seem like a social cognitive account has a lot to go on there. Um, but there might be other things that we could explore. Um, for example, um, future studies might be interested in the role of um, something called the default mode network. The default mode network is a, a set of brain regions which tend to be connected together um, and are particularly active when somebody is lying in a scanner and you don't ask them to do a particular task. Um, the interesting thing about the default mode network is it seems to be involved in, um, among a range of functions, things like introspection, things like spontaneous thought, but also things like self-other processing, uh, thinking about other people, thinking about experiences in the past. Um, so one idea is that rather than theory of mind, you could have something going on in the default mode network which plays into the experience of hallucinations. Uh, two examples of that, uh, a paper by Renaud Jardry in 2013 um, showed evidence at rest of an unstable default mode network um, occurring just preceding uh, periods of both auditory and visual hallucinations, uh, whether they're together or separately. There's some sense in which the normal introspective processes which might be going on in the brain can suddenly be disrupted or can suddenly fall out of their uh, typical pattern and then hallucinations might occur. Um, in that instance, what that would be implying is some sort of blurring between inner and outer processes, inner, um, inner introspective processes and outer sensory processes. Um, another example of what might be interesting about the default mode network, a paper that came out yesterday uh, by Spunts and colleagues, um, which argues that the default mode network is important for priming the intentional stance towards others. Um, and by that they mean 
uh, treating uh, things or people as agents, as people who have beliefs, people who have desires. I mean, that's really at the core of what we're talking about if we think that voices are dealt with um, in a kind of agentic way. Um, so, um, there are some options there if we want to talk about different social cognitive processes being involved in um, auditory verbal hallucinations. Um, very quickly now, I'm going to go over three alternative ideas um, that we could use instead, rather than necessarily having to add anything. Um, one idea, which may be familiar to um, members of the group already, is the argument that, look, inner speech processes and the way in which we talk to ourselves already, already is a social process in some way. This has been argued uh, recently by Charles Fernyhoe, our uh, project director, um, uh, based on really a developmental approach to inner speech. Um, the idea being that the way in which uh, we talk to ourselves, our own verbal thinking is shaped by um, external interactions um, in early experience in uh, cognitive development. It's preceded by um, conversation and communication with others. It moves on to a stage of private speech where you talk out loud but still to yourself and then leads into an experience of internal inner speech. Um, on this idea, when you talk to yourself, you're still going to be using the characteristics as if you were talking to somebody. You're still going to have social elements of this, of this process inherent in, um, inherent in what you're doing. Um, some recent evidence that there might be social aspects which are quite vivid in people's inner speech. Um, a study that we did last year that's under review right now asked people to generate dialogues in their inner speech um, and we also ran a task, a theory of mind task, where they had to decipher non-verbal intentions from cartoons. Um, you can't see it very clearly because of the changing colour, but um, what we found was um, an overlap, this should have been in green, um, an overlap between these two processes um, in a particular area which is very, very associated with the representation of other people's mental states, and that's the right temporal parietal junction. Um, the argument here being that actually when people imagine dialogue and when people uh, run through conversations in the head, uh, they're actually recruiting social cognitive systems all the time in some way. Um, dialogues and conversations are also something that seem to be a really, really common feature of people's inner speech when you go and ask them. Uh, we've now replicated in four separate student samples and in an international sample that we gathered for the hearing voice reading study of over a thousand participants. Um, that uh, features of um, inner speech being conversational dialogue like are very, very common, uh, usually endorsed by around about 70 to 80% of people. Um, a second way of thinking about social processes and trying to get them into um, the existing systems that we think are involved in voice hearing is to think about um, the way in which speech perception actually requires and depends on um, interaction. Um, so, uh, this is mainly based on things like Hickok and Popple's uh, model of um, speech processing in the brain. They argue there are two routes. There's a route that, um, a ventral route, which goes underneath um, and is basically related to the processing of um, different types of syntax and semantics in the language. But there's also a dorsal route, specific to the left hemisphere, which involves an interaction of speech production and motor processes and speech perception processes. The implication of that route, the dorsal route, is that when we are perceiving speech, we're constantly drawing upon predictions about what's going to happen. Okay. Um, this is fleshed out a bit more by people like Pickering and Garrett. Uh, Pickering and Garrett for a number of years have been arguing that listening to speech is not a passive process. Engaging in uh, understanding language is not a process by which you sit there and wait for your turn to speak. If anything, speech processing is set up for responding. Speech processing is set up for 
quick interactions and quick dialogue. And they point to the fact that people can respond and fill in, fill in each of the sentences at split second uh, gaps. Um, if, you, if it was some sort of serial process by which we understood speech, um, then we'd never be able to perform in that way, they mm -hmm. argue. And the way in which they think it works is that we're constantly drawing upon speech production processes and models of what's going to happen, what somebody will say when we hear speech. Now, the implication there for voice hearing is this, that constantly when we're hearing things or we think we're going to hear things, we're constantly making predictions anyway about what might be said, who might speak. Um, and that's constantly drawing on speech motor processes too. Now, that could use a lot of the same networks as an inner speech model or a self-monitoring model. Okay. It doesn't, the only difference is it doesn't necessarily rely on you saying something to yourself, but it could involve many of the same brain networks. Um, some people argue that Pickering and Garrett are uh, barking at the wrong tree with this sort of approach. For example, Sophie Scott from um, the ICN argues that motor involvement in speech perception isn't necessary to things like comprehension or recognising speech, but it is about a turn-taking response. So what you're doing is really getting ready for your go to speak, I guess, depending on how much you're not listening to the person talking. Um, but the idea there, still, irrespective of what that motor process is doing, the idea is that during speech perception, you are queued up to interact. You are queued up to respond in some way. What that means, again, for something like voice hearing is that if you hear a voice, you don't treat it as some sort of passive stimulus. Actually, it's something that most of your speech processing is preparing for you to respond to as if it was an interlocutor, as if it was an agent. Um, a third idea here is um, that voices may have affordances. Um, for those unfamiliar with the term, um, this is, this is a, a picture of J.J. Gibson, who's a um, cognitive psychologist interested in perception in the mid-20th century. Um, and Gibson's uh, main contribution <laughs> to literature is the ecological theory of perception. In his theory of perception, there's no real distinction between your perception of something and your knowledge of all the different things you could do with it and all the different ways you could interact. So, for example, if I see a piano, I don't see the piano and then go away and think about it in some way that, oh, well, that's a piano, I, it's brown, I could do something, I could open this thing and I could play it now. When you see a piano, you see it as a thing to be played. When you see a piano, you're seeing it as something that you could do something with, something you could interact with, and it'll be more vivid in your environment based on the extent to which you could use it. This sense of use is in affordance. Okay? Now, one idea could be that voices feel like things that are to be interacted with in some way, feel like they have presence, because inherent in them is an affordance about agency. Um, inherent in the perception of the voice per se is the sense in which this is something to be spoken to, this is something to be listened to, this is something which indicates some sort of knowledge. Okay, um, in that reading, there wouldn't be any, um, there wouldn't be any distinction really between voices and agents at all, or the idea that one might be prior to the other. It would just be an indivisible thing that you experience. You experience a voice in its environment. Um, the, um, and in that context, the prompt to act on a voice or respond to it as an agent is a really automatic response. Now, interestingly, um, and in predictive accounts, there is some work now to looking at how affordances might actually be part of a predictive approach. This idea that things have things being part of the prediction, even at very, very low levels in sensory processing, might involve priors about use, might involve initial prediction ideas about the ways in which we can interact in a very, very basic way. Um, so, 
I should probably wrap up, but I'm going to finish off by two questions which are probably just going to confuse me even more rather than clarify, but I've, I've mostly titled this Clarifying the Social Further Questions um, for an Account of Auditory Hallucinations as Agents. Um, first question is this, how representative are non-auditory cases? I've always already referred to the idea that um, some people will say we're just muddying the water if we talk about all these experiences as voices in some way. Um, Cases of pure presence or soundlessness, um, they might seem like fringe cases, they might not actually be very prevalent at all. Um, on the one hand, that, that might be okay, in the sense that what they're there for are fringe cases which prompt the question, do we need to rethink how most voices might be? It might still be the case that most voices are very, very auditory. Um, it might still be the case that there are more voices that are auditory than are kind of characterful or agentic in some way. That would be an empirical question to explore. What the pure presences or soundless voices uh, do is raise the question, why does somebody call that a voice if they call it a voice? Um, and so that's why they perform the function of, of the, the questions I've tried to answer today. If somebody decides to call that a voice, what is it they're calling a voice in that instance if it's not auditory? In this instance, the argument is that it's some sort of social or agent-like identity. However, it is important to keep in mind that some of these experiences might just be something else. Um, and I think if there is something to demarcate, it's probably cases of pure felt presence. Um, many cases of felt presence um, don't clearly have a character. They might have a vague sense of uh, a presence that is there to do something or to help. Certainly in survival situations, the pre predominant character, if there is one, is this, this voice is here to guide me in some way. They're very rarely interacted with. You don't, people don't talk about talking back to their presence. They might behave in a particular way because they think that the, the presence has indicated that they should. But even then, that might only be one type of behaviour. So it's not as if this is something that they could have a conversation with. Um, also, um, it seems like we can have a sense of agency or character voices without presence and vice versa. And we can actually create those conditions in artificial situations as well. Uh, for example, a study by Arzi and colleagues used neurostimulation of the left temporal parietal junction to induce feelings of a presence of somebody right beside them. Um, now that presence in that instance again wasn't something you could interact with it did almost seem like a pure social presence um, so it seems like those things are divisible from other ca cases of um, agency and character and social presence possibly um, pushes them together slightly um, it might indeed be that some people have voices that can also appear as felt presences but we should be wary of lumping them together as I've done for the purposes of this talk um, this is a case, this is a table also documenting all the different cases of felt presence um, that you can get, or the different contexts in which it can occur. Um, a table organised by Tor Nielsen. Um, it covers uh, felt, felt presences in postpartum states, epilepsy, bereavement, um, uh, electrical stimulation of certain brain areas, um, and um, in very unusual environments like third man factors. So this seems something which, though it might raise interesting questions for hallucinations, probably isn't something to be lumped in in the same way. Um, it's also important to say that in some cases of felt presence, it's a really, really heightened sense of presence. So it feels like, not only feels like somebody is there, but the hairs go up on the back of your neck, um, you are aware of how you're moving, you want it to go away. These are, um, these are almost like hyper-presences in some way, that almost tangible, but not quite. They're not clearly the same thing as, occasionally I know that my voice is there, even when it doesn't quite have a form, per se. Um, the second question is this. Um, 
if we think that social or agent-like representations were at the core of voice hearing, why would they bring about a voice and not something else? Or rather, why would they be so associated with, associated with voices? Why wouldn't we have lots and lots of agentic and characterful visual hallucinations? Why wouldn't we have uh, malevolent smell hallucinations or something like that? You know, it seems like voices are, are um, in particular likely to be agent-like. And so then we need an account of well, what's, what's going on there. And we could also think that things like agency would actually lead to lots of other sorts of difficulties too. Um, differing internal models of agency, as I said, could, could be consistent with delusion, but could also be consistent with things like depression, social phobia, anxiety, passivity. Okay, the link between that and a perception per se isn't necessarily clear, and that needs to be fleshed out. Um, finally, hallucinations of agency could come in other modalities too. I've already covered that. So, um, but, that, but what that leaves is a question. Is there something about a voice that conveys agency in a particular way? Is there something about voices which can get a message to you, or can deliver an intention, which makes them seem more agent-like? Um, perhaps we could do that with visual hallucinations as well, but then also visual hallucinations are, uh, tend to be a lot more complex to actually create. You don't see many multimodal examples, well, many very, very vivid examples of visual hallucinations that will do, be walking and talking in characterful, whereas all a voice has to do is whisper in your ear, and you're already thinking about what it means and who it is. Um, so, uh, I've rambled over a load of ground, I've been talking for quite a while, so I'm just going to summarise that, uh, what I've tried to cover today. If we take social or agent-like properties to be important characteristics of voices, then um, our standard models, as well, psych standard psychological models definitely need updating. Um, we could invoke separate social cognitive processes, um, but social characteristics of voices may also be inherent in and expected by our normal systems of speech production and reception. And arguably we need to look at those uh, in a more focused way as well. Um, finally, um, if we were to take a social first account, if we were to think that when people talk about their voices, they're talking about a social identity primarily, we'd also need to explain why it is that there's such a bind between voices and agency. Um, and I'm going to just uh, finish off by saying... Um, thank you very much for attending and thank you to everybody I've spoken to in trying to develop this project. Um, I've only put pictures of people who can't be here who I'm thanking. Uh, Joe Atkinson, um, who's worked with Deaf Voice here, has prompted a lot of questions for me. Um, Joel Kruger, former member of the project, who, whose mention of affordances in the autumn reminded me of what they were. And Vaughan Bell, because in this picture he appears to be cuddling a ghost. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you very much. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice.